Let me uh, welcome you to RUF, especially. Um, oh, why is this not working? Especially if this is your first or second time. My name is Brian Sorgan Fry, and we're really glad you're here. We hope you find this a safe place, uh, no matter where you are, to examine the truth claims of Scripture and figure them out. Uh, I give. I try to give thanks to people when uh, I shamelessly steal their stuff. And there's a guy named Ricky Jones who used to be the campus minister here who gave me kind of what I thought was the key to understanding uh, Cain and Abel. So I want to thank him. Um, okay, what we're doing is we're going back uh, every week to episode one, season one in the Bible, the book of Genesis, and daring to consider that maybe, maybe we've missed the beginning. That maybe our confusion, maybe our doubts, maybe our boredom uh, could be healed by going back to the beginning of the story And that will help us understand the true story that we live in. And tonight I want you to consider something. Like, why do we love stories where the outsider comes in? Right? Why uh, in Lord of the Rings do we love that Boromir falls to power, but Faramir is okay with the ring? Uh, Why do we love, you know, in Harry Potter when Neville Longbottom and, and Luna Lovegood finally get recognized? Why do we, here we go. In the movie Hot Rod. Why do we love someone who has seemingly nothing to offer ends up with the good girl? Like, we love those things. And what I would, wanna, what I would suggest if, is, what about if the reason that you love that is because of Genesis 4? That the true story of this world shows us that the march of world history is there are two lines. There's the seed of the serpent. There is... The seed of the faithless, and there's the seed of the woman, the seed of the faithful, of God's people. And those who are in used to be outsiders. Those who are in have little little or nothing to offer. And those who are out seem to have it all together. That's what you see at the beginning of Genesis 4, that everything gets flipped upside down. It's the way that God's kingdom always works. What about if that's why you love those stories? Let me pray for us. Lord, um, would you help us to understand your word? You tell us that if two or three are gathered in your name, you will be here. And so we are here. We are trusting that whether we are tired or confused or ashamed, uh, that you would show up and you would show up through your word and you would speak words of mercy and grace to us tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here is Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for, for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's skip into verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Word of our God stands forever. All right, in this ongoing conflict, I want us to see three things. God's mercy and Cain's anger. Then God's mercy and Cain's murder. And then God's mercy and Cain's remorse. First, God's mercy and Cain's anger. This is what you see in verse 1 through 5. Look, to make sense of Cain and eventually his anger and his murder, I'm going to suggest you've got to remember what we talked about last week. And if you weren't here... Here's the deal. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve ruined everything when they brought sin into the world. When they rebelled against God, everything breaks. But on the end of Adam and Eve's sin, God makes this incredible promise. And what he says is there is going to be a seed. There's going to be a champion that's going to come from the woman. And he will crush the serpent. He will kill the serpent, kill Satan, and therefore push back everything that's, that's wrong and heal the world. And Adam believes the promise. Adam believes that there's going to be one born of a woman that will finally fix everything that's wrong. And, and here you go. Chapter 4 opens with a pregnancy, a seed. And it seems, from the way that the text is written, that there's much optimism. That the seed has arrived. Maybe this is the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Finally fix all this mess that we've created. Adam and Eve think Cain is the champion. Right? Wouldn't you think that's the way it works? God makes a promise. Here comes pregnant Eve. He's here. And here's the deal. If you think that there's a champion coming that's going to conquer Satan and push back everything that's wrong with this world, what would you expect? You expect somebody confident, somebody strong, somebody that does things right, somebody self-sufficient and independent. And here comes Cain. He fits the bill. She says he's here, the man, the one that the Lord has brought. She names him Cain, which means this is the formed one. It has all the notions of successful and productivity. And look at him. He's it. Like, he's productive. He's successful. Last week we saw that God curses the ground so that it will no longer bear fruit like it's supposed to. But what's Cain doing? He's working the ground. He's bringing fruit. He's pushing back the curse. Cain is special. Cain's the man. He's gifted. He's the firstborn. He's the favored one. He takes initiative. He looks like he's the hero. He has it all. And he certainly looks like he's more of the part than, than Abel. Abel isn't the firstborn. Abel, his name literally means vapor. The same word used for insignificance in in Ecclesiastes. 
And he's the, he seems to be the opposite of Cain. He's passive. He never speaks in this whole account. He seems to be weak, right? It doesn't take much for Cain to overpower him. He's just easily conquered. And he's just a keeper of sheep, right? Cain, you're strong. You work the ground. Abel, I don't know. Just go keep the sheep. And now comes the conflict. Both Cain and Abel, they bring an offering to the Lord from their hands. Cain brings the fruit of his work. He brings uh, fruit of the ground. And Abel brings the fruit of his work, the sheep. And here comes the conflict. Verse 4 and 5. The Lord has regard for Abel and his offering. He accepts it as pleasing. He has no regard for Cain and his offering. He rejects Cain's offering. What in the world? Why did God do that? Right? Well, you get a hint of what Scripture makes much clearer later in in Hebrews 11 that I'm going to refer to. But Cain's reaction, his anger, tells you the problem. The problem wasn't the content of what Cain brought. It's something going on within him. It's his posture. Right? Cain isn't sad. He's not confused. He's very angry. That's what it says. Why is he so angry? How come he's so angry? Well, think about, think, about, mm, think about this imaginary situation. Maybe it's not imaginary. Uh, of, of the difference in your reaction. If you were to get back an exam and you knew you hadn't studied for it and you knew you had bombed it and you knew it was going to be terrible and you get back the exam and it says an F, look, your reaction is going to be sad, I don't know, disappointed, but you're probably not going to get angry at the professor. You probably realize, yeah, like this is what I deserve. However, if you've done really well on the exam, like confident you had aced it and you get back to the exam, and indeed you'd almost gotten everything right, yet he gave you an F, now you're angry. And you're angry at the professor. Why? Because failure is not what you deserved. And did you hear it? You only get angry. If you are unfairly treated. And there's the answer. Cain brought his sacrifice, the work of his hands, and he was certain it was good enough. He was confident that the stuff that he produced was worthy of God's acceptance and commendation. Why wouldn't he? He's Cain. He's always been the man. He's always been good at what he does. And that's your window into Cain. Cain thought he was good enough. He certainly knew he was better than Abel. Abel's a nobody. And so he thought the summation of who he was... Cain didn't think he was perfect. He's bringing, he's bringing uh, an offering, okay? But Cain at least thought that the summation of who he was and what he had not hadn't done was good enough to merit God's blessing and acceptance. Cain is the epitome of self-righteousness. That's who Cain is. And I hope that's what helps you keep Cain from being this weird story out there about this caricature of evil to where you start realizing that, oh man, I think that Cain exposes who I am. Because if you want to know where evil is really lurking in your life, don't look at your mess-ups. Like, don't look at your obvious failures or your weakness. Look at the places that you refuse to fail. That's where your evil lurks. Look at the places where if you were to fail in this area, you would be so angry, you'd be so upset because you felt like your life fell apart, 
And so you will do whatever it takes for that not to fail. That's where the evil is. That's the evil that will destroy you. That's the stuff that you think this really holds my life together rather than God. That's what you're convinced makes you a somebody. And those are all Cain sacrifices. So dare to ask yourself, like, where is it for you? What's the thing that if it gets threatened with failure, it makes you angry or panic? It could be your goodness. And so you get really angry if people don't notice how good of a friend that you are. Or you get upset if your life doesn't look like it should. And those people who couldn't care less about God, those people who don't take their faith seriously like me, people like them and their life is going well. That's it. It's your goodness that's the problem. Or maybe it's your perceived future that right what, what lies ahead or, or after college feels so unstable, so, so unknown that that imagined future that you've set before you, because it doesn't feel stable, because it feels like it's going to fail, you're angry. You're especially angry that other people already know what they're doing. Or maybe it's people's approval of you. And you've worked so hard at spinning people and keeping people's approval. That if somebody's finally disappointed in you, you're just angry. How dare that person? What is the thing that if it gets threatened, you get really angry because it feels like your life is over? That's the Cain sacrifice. And I'll even go this far. I think grounding our acceptance before God in something that we do in our performance, it's the reason that we can't accept compliments. This is a very weird thing that we do. We're so convinced that what I do or how I come across or what I look like is what makes me somebody, that that's that's what makes me important. That when you compliment me, and it feels so good, it's like this sweet morsel that finally feels life-giving. You noticed. But here comes that realization. I can't let you know how much that matters to me. I can't let you know that you just spoke into life itself. So I got to be like, ah, what? That wasn't a good sermon. That, whatever. Because we can't dare to show that this is who I am, and you just stroked it. It is. It ends up being well, the. I feel like it's gotten heavy. I'll make it light again. It's the Monica Chandler situation, okay? And friends, right? Any friends fans out there? I, I'm hitting everybody with my illustrations tonight. I want you to know how proud I am. All right. This is thanks to Caroline White, actually. What is Monica? Monica is the organized perfectionist, right? That is, what make, that is what makes her life make sense. That's what makes her a somebody. That's what she thinks makes her lovable. But it's the very thing that pushes people away. And Chandler finally looks at her one time and says, I don't love you because you're organized. I love you in spite of you being organized. And see, that's what God is doing right here. This is how merciful He is. He is graciously taking away Cain's identity. Saying, Cain, I'm not going to accept you because you're better than Abel. My love is not going to be based because you're on some sort of goodness that you bring to the table. I'm going to love you in spite of that. But see, as long as you think that the reason that God's going to accept me is bounded from something that I do or don't do or have, I tell you, you'll be bitter, 
You'll be angry and you will be the seed of the serpent. That's the message. You have aligned yourself with the powers of darkness within Satan itself. And what, what God is doing is saying, your best stuff isn't good enough, Cain. Come to me and me only for salvation. And so could it be that God is actually calling out in mercy amidst your failures? Could it be the fact that we are so paralyzed by the thought of failure that that's the thing that's killing us? Because the very thing that's resisting the... Because we resist the notion of failure is the problem. And God is graciously saying, I only accept failures. Period. That's who I am. And see, that's why Abel's sacrifice is accepted and not Cain's. Look, the best... Here's the number one rule of interpretation of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Everybody wants to make up all this stuff about why Cain's... Why Abel's... Offering was accepted, not Cain's. Like, I don't know, maybe it's an animal, maybe it has blood. But Hebrews 11 says, because Abel brought his by faith. What does that mean? It means the posture of Abel's heart was this. Man, I know the stuff that I bring to the table isn't good enough. My stuff isn't that big of a deal. So what he was doing was trusting God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace and not his own. That's what makes Abel's sacrifice acceptable. The posture of humble faith. You could have complimented Abel and he probably would have been surprised and been like, all right. But it wouldn't have made his life. And so first, by far the longest, the conflict between God and Cain is caused by Cain's self-righteousness. He finds his identity in his own performance. But then you see it leads to murder, right? God's mercy and Cain's murder. God approaches Cain, verse 6 through 8. And in his love for Cain, in his mercy towards Cain, he questions and warns Cain. Is Cain evil? Yes. Is he the seed of the serpent? Yes. Does God care for him? Yes. Why else would he question and warn Cain if he didn't care for him? And he says, why are you angry? He's saying, Cain, examine yourself. Look what's going on within you. You can trust me. And then he warns him. It's the first time we see the word sin in the Bible. God personifies sin and says, Cain... Sin is crouching at the door. God is loving Cain enough to show you, look, you don't want to go down this road. It will destroy you. Come to me. Come to me repentant and weak. If you keep going down this road, it will destroy you. But Cain refuses. Cain refuses to give up his identity. And so what he does, instead of giving up his identity of how good he is and and, and the stuff that he does, he invites Abel out into a field and he murders his brother. He gets rid of Abel. I want you to see this. Cain really is at this crisis point. Because what he built his life on, that he is good, that he's got it together, that he's better than Abel, that stuff just got threatened. And it just came up short. And it got threatened by Abel. And so when Abel's sacrifice is accepted and Cain isn't, he's at a crossroads. He can either come to God helpless as a failure or he's got to get rid of Abel. Those, those are his only two options. I either got to repent and come to God helpless, or I got to get rid of Abel. He says, I'm going to keep my identity and who I am and all the stuff that I do, so I'm going to get rid of Abel. And he does. You know, I've heard me tell, I tell this probably at least once a year, I just can't find a better illustration of the grossness of sin than myself. Um, there, my freshman year in college at um, 
well, the unnamed school up north. There was, uh, there was this guy who started the freshman year with me, and here's who he was. He was, like, really good looking. He was, uh, like, socially funny. Very cool. Like, all the girls liked him. He could, like, play the guitar, you know. Um, and he was cool but not too cool. And he was really involved with RUF and, like, this really good guy. And I hated him. And do you know why I hated him? Because he was better than me at everything I wanted to be. And so I, I either had to see that about myself or figure out ways to destroy him. And I did. Whether it was on the intramural field, whether it was like mocking him or sarcasm, I had to get rid of him. He was a threat to my righteousness. And so if you want to know the second sign of caneness in your life, it's, it's bound up in how you view and treat, treat people. If what makes you acceptable to God is wrapped up in something you do or don't do, then other people are always threats. Always. They're always competition. And so you have to beat them. And you're going to beat them either by getting other people beneath you and arrogance and condescension. And so you look at people with haughty eyes and you think, I would never do that. I could never do what she just did. I could never be like that. And see, you've gotten rid of them with haughty eyes and condescension instead of repentance. Or instead, or you're going to dismiss them through envy and jealousy. Right? That person has what you need to be okay. And so you wish you were as popular or as beautiful or whatever it is as her. You wish you were as carefree as him. Or you wish you had the family that he had. Or you wish you were as driven and balanced as her. And there's this bitterness, this anger that you wish that you were that person. Which means you wish that person didn't exist. You wish it was you. And you've gotten them out of the way. Or finally, you just beat them through violence. That person that has what you wish that you had, you just pass along gossip about them. Or you rejoice at their downfall. Or you give them cold shoulders. All kinds of nonverbal signs of dismissal. That's the only place that you can go with people if what makes you okay is something bound up in that you have done or haven't done. Or who. And so what I would invite you to is this. Like if your caneness is being exposed tonight, like mine is, realize this is the mercy of God. He is saying tonight, watch out. He is warning you, saying sin is crouching at your door. What you think is going to give you life... It's going to destroy you. And He loves you enough to warn you. And so we see God's mercy and, um, and Cain's anger. And then we see God's mercy and Cain's murder. And finally, He just ends in remorse, right? Verse 9 through 16. Cain has shown himself to be fully in cahoots with sin and darkness. He's a liar. He's a murderer. But here's what's amazing. God comes after Cain again. He comes mercifully questioning him. Cain, where is your brother? He's still telling Cain he can trust him. Calling for Cain to confess and come empty-handed. But Cain lies. And then he mocks God and says, Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is, yes, you're your brother's keeper. But he mocks him. And so then God comes closer and says, The voice of your brother's blood is crying out and I've heard it. God says, I hear the cry of justice. I always do. And so he punishes Cain. And look at his punishment. 
It's actually incredibly merciful. He curses Cain and says, now the ground is going to fight all the more against you. Look what he's doing. He's saying, Cain, you keep drawing your identity from how good you do stuff. I'm going to frustrate that to no end. I'm going to keep putting pain there. So you keep being reminded, this is not who you are. God is completely taking away any sense of identity that Cain can get from what he's good at. And what's Cain's response? It's just, this punishment is too great. Somebody will kill me. And there's the third and final sign of resisting God. Of it just being about you. It's just that you always end up in remorse, not repentance. Surely you've seen this before, right? The, the like unhealthy dating couple where the guy kind of treats her not as she should be treated with respect. He doesn't, he doesn't really notice her and care for her until she says, we need to break up. And then what does he do? He's incredibly sorry. And he changes. And he starts treating her nicely for a while until it feels like he's got her again and then he goes right back. Why? Because what he was sorry about was the consequences of how he was living. What he was sorry about is the fear that he was going to lose her. He wasn't sorry about the way he was treating her. And that's the last sign of Cainness. Is that when you get exposed, when you get caught, you're remorseful but you're not repentant. You're just sorry you got caught but you're still not willing to shift your identity to God, to Jesus. You're sorry for the consequences that you've lost the thing that you cared about, that you lost somebody's approval or that, you're, that you lost this good feeling that you had about yourself. But you're still unwilling to come helpless in need of mercy. You're still alienated from God because you're not sad for, the, for what sin is. That it's against Jesus. That it separates us. And that's a distrust of who God is. And so the story ends with Cain wandering. And God's still merciful. God still protects his life. But Cain is wandering for the rest of his life, scared. And I'm telling you, that's always the end result of finding your identity in something that you do or don't do or in your performance. The end result of self-righteousness is always wondering. And it's always a life of fear. Because it's always about what you do. It's always, have I done enough? Have I tried hard enough? Have I been sincere enough? How do I compare to other people? And there's constant wandering, instability, and anger. It's the path of Cain. And I want to start bringing it to a close by getting you to connect the dots. Cain is evil. Yes. Cain is the seed of the serpent. Yes. But what does the seed of the serpent look like? Here's the pattern. God offers mercy. Cain refuses it. God moves towards Cain in merciful warnings. Cain moves away. God moves towards Cain in mercy and Cain moves away again. This is the point. God, Cain is not the first person to sin in this world. Plenty of people have sinned by now. But Cain is the first person to sin and refuse God's grace. That's the mark of the serpent. He will not take on the posture of humility. He will not take on the posture of weakness and receive grace. He will not get past his worthiness or his unworthiness. He can't get out of his self-absorption. I was actually... my. 
friend, former campus minister, boss, whatever you're calling, Les Newsom. Uh, he came in town yesterday, and as he and I were talking, plenty about my issues and all kinds of stuff. I, I got to this point where I said, you know, Les, what's weird is sometimes I get paralyzed by this thought of, am I a campus minister because I love Jesus and love people? Or am I actually a campus minister because, like, I love that people listen to me? And I love that I get a lot of attention. And I love the Brian Sorgan Fry show. And it's the only thing that like makes my life feel stable. You know what Les looked at me and said? He said, you know what the answer is? It's the second. Of course it's the second. You're driven by all kinds of selfishness. And he's begging the question, what are you going to do with that realization? The answer is to cry out for mercy again. That's what it's always been about. It's never been about my performance. And what that means for us tonight is this. If you realize that you're a Cain tonight, more more like Cain than you want to admit, yes, that's the sign of God working. Run to Him. Admit that you're a failure. For the first time or the thousandth time, embrace your weakness. This is how the chapter ends. Another child comes. Seth replaces Abel. And he names his child Enosh. You know what Enosh means? This is awesome. Weakness. He names his child weakness. Weakness is the way. He gets it. And through him, a community of worshipers come. And through his line, you know who's coming? Jesus, the champion. And Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus is the meteor of the new covenant. The one whose sprinkled blood is better than the blood of Abel. You know why it's better than the blood of Abel? Because it doesn't cry out for justice. It cries out for mercy. Because Jesus' blood, who got put on a cross, by the way, by the seed of the serpent, which was Pharisees and good people, He dies on the cross for our sin, for our failure, for all of our caneness, so that you can come to Him as a failure, so that you can come to Him as empty-handed and receive life. And receive acceptance. It's because of the blood of Jesus that it's finally okay to not be okay. It's because of the blood of Jesus that you're free to be a failure. The offer of mercy is going out tonight. We receive it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Genesis 4. I pray that it has exposed our self-righteousness. It is, gosh, it just seems so natural. Uh, to relate to you based on our merit. And would you once again convince us tonight that the posture before you is not faith in ourselves, not faith in our faith, not faith in our performance, but the empty hands of faith that Jesus has lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that cries out louder than the blood of Abel. Would that cover us tonight? Amen.